Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Did you know the best seeds for your garden don't come from the nursery? In fact, the seeds that will create the most robust and delicious fruits and vegetables come directly from your garden. This is because they are uniquely adapted to your growing conditions, better than anything you can buy from a fancy catalog or website. Through the magic of seed saving, it is quite possible to have the garden of your dreams. The best part is, saving your own seeds is surprisingly easy and fun. With a bit of instruction, anyone can become a seed-saving superstar. Let us teach you how in our free seed-saving webinar. Just text SEEDS to 33444 to sign up or visit SeedSavingHacked.org for more information. That's SEEDS to 33444 or visit SeedSavingHacked.org. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have John Vespasian to talk about rational self-reliant living. John is a personal development author of eight books about history and psychology, including his latest book, Thriving in Difficult Times, 12 Lessons from Ancient Greece to Improve Your Life Today. As a lover of history, he is continuously studying and making notes about what he learns and has found many examples in the past that he feels can help people in society today. John has given many interviews around his research into what made the Greek society prosperous for a thousand years and what later became its downfall. Welcome to the show today, John. Uh, Hi, Greg. Uh, Thanks for having me on your show. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Yes, uh, my path to to writing books um, is a bit unusual because... Uh, I started to write books out of really irritation and uh, dissatisfaction. Mm. I have been reading um, books about uh, philosophy, personal development, psychology, and also business books, uh, marketing, sales, I mean, all kinds of books. 
uh, for decades. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, uh, we are talking 2000, 2007, 2008, I was really fed up. I thought uh, most of the books I read, they're very much unrealistic, uh, superficial, uh, they are not based on facts, and mm -hmm. the recommendations they make, uh, they are not practical. So I thought I could write uh, myself the kind of books I want to read. I preferred, I would I prefer that someone else did, because then I wouldn't have to go through the writing. You would never but do I it, said, okay, yeah. <laughs> um, look, this is not available in the market, so let's see if I can produce it myself. So I started to write uh, books about personal development based on history, uh -huh. Because I'm a, I'm a very much um, very much interested in history for for years, and I have put uh, both areas together. I have produced now eight books, and uh, this is what I intend to do for the for the next decade. So if um, if I manage to do that, uh, nice. to produce at, le at least uh, one book per year, and uh, it's something I find fascinating uh, because uh, there is so much to learn um, from uh, ancient history, from, from Middle Ages, from uh, history of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And in a way, uh, I have to say, I write the books for myself. These are the, the books, the research I want to do, the books I want to read. I'm happy that other people like them, because otherwise it would be a bit stupid uh, to write books. But uh, in the end, uh, I follow my own taste and I say, OK, look, I find this story super interesting. I'm going to research it, even if later on, it proves uh, that there are not so many people that like it, but mm -hmm. in the end, I follow my nose, I follow my taste. When I find a story uh, which has a lesson, which has a, uh, insight, you can gain insight from, from learning the story. Yeah. Um, I'm ready to spend uh, a lot of time doing research just to write a few pages, because in the end, um, I'm learning myself, I'm trying to, uh, to become a better human being, and this is the purpose of my work. Yeah. So you talk a lot about rational living. What is that? Well, it's a, it's a simple um, idea. It's an approach uh, to personal development, uh, it's an approach also to philosophy and psychology. It's based on a simple idea, a very simple principle that uh, in the long term, people do much better in life if they try to make uh, logical decisions, if they try to take a step back mm -hmm. and to, to keep a cool head uh, when they have to make, uh, when we have to make important decisions concerning our careers, concerning our finances, uh, concerning relationships. Uh, when we have to, to make a decision, which is strategic decision for the future, it always works better if you try to think things over and you try to use logic. Now, it's a very simple principle. When you go to application, it's very difficult to apply <laughs> because we, we are, as human beings, we are very much irrational. We take to yeah. get um, uh, frightened. We go into panic mode. Uh, we we do foolish things one after the other, and this is human condition. This is something it will never change. But right. uh, the purpose of my books, if I can make uh, my readers and myself one percent, two percent more rational, mm -hmm. uh, I think in the long term it will have a huge uh, beneficial um, uh, result in our lives. Yeah, well, that's very interesting. I, I have this. I call it my my ninety nine one rule. I, th I say that people change 99% of the time when they get hit by a Mack truck and 1% of the time when they choose to change. So that sounds to me like it's kind of along the same lines as your rational living. Because uh, I think what you're asking people to do is wake up and make conscious choices. Is that where we're going with this? Uh, yes, but I use your example and trying to have the 99% uh, happen to other people. Right. And this is why I prefer to learn from history uh, rather than making the mistakes myself. Mm -hmm. And I think um, when you look at uh, the ancient Greeks, which is the subject of my uh, latest book, you realize that uh, many problems that we are struggling with today 
uh, they already solved them uh, 25 centuries ago. It's just that if we don't spend the time to actually see what other mistakes uh, people have made, if we don't take the time to read ancient uh, literature or, or theater or philosophy, eventually we have to reinvent the wheel. And this is a very expensive way to live, very mm, expensive mm-hmm. way to learn. And uh, okay, I mean, you don't have other possibilities, then okay, you have to do, uh, you have to make your own mistakes. But if you can avoid uh, at least the big mistakes, uh, in the long term, you will do much, much better. Yeah. <laughs> Amen to that. And so how can we go about learning from history? Well, um, I have to say that when I studied history at school, as many years ago, mm-hmm. I found it extremely boring. Uh, because right. uh, the way you get the presentation is like, um, first, it's very unrealistic the way you presented it because they presented like a little story where everything fits. But uh, in reality, um, this way of writing history is boring and it's useless because you get all these uh, big picture presentations, you get all these uh, mm-hmm. heroes, uh, you know, the battles and the queens and the kings. And in the end, okay, what's the point? I mean, what's the lesson from all these stories? And the lesson is nothing because there is no lesson, right. it's just a story. And it was only later on when I started to actually read um, uh, books myself about history and try to read biographies and to try to really draw uh, conclusions, uh, I mean, useful learning from those books that I Mm -hmm. really started to really enjoy history. Because um, if you get so disappointed at school that you say, I will never read a history book again, it's a completely waste of time, it's a complete waste of time, then basically um, you are... uh, curtailing your possibility to grow because if you don't learn from history, where are you going to learn from? You're going to learn from the newspapers, from the media, from the magazines. I mean, history is the best teacher. It's the best teacher for personal development, for economics, uh, for for any kind of uh, areas. And uh, it's a pity that human beings, uh, we are so stubborn that uh, we prefer to make mistakes ourselves. But I tell (laughs) you, it's very, 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 very expensive, uh, Greg. Yeah. So... This is an interesting question that you sent over to me. What do you think is the most important lesson from history? And I am just curious as I'll get out to hear your answer on that one. Well, from having written now eight books, uh, uh, I'm writing now the number nine, I can tell you that the patterns that you find in in, um, in history, in in successful cultures, successful people, um, and also the patterns you find in, in catastrophes and disasters, they are always the same. Mm. And uh, you, can, you can say that a society uh, which is prosperous, and we are talking now of ancient Greece 25 centuries ago, they have the same principles that you see today in all successful countries. As you see in the United States or in Europe or in Australia or in Singapore or Hong Kong, you see the same principles. And the, the, you go to ancient Greek culture, you see that the Greeks were able to thrive uh, for 10 centuries because they respected uh, private property, because basically they invented uh, private property in the oh, way yeah. we, uh, we, um, we know it today. They invented private property. They have a system which, of course, was not very sophisticated because they were a small, a small settlement, so they didn't need a lot of uh, legal rules. But mm-hmm. they invented private property. They respected private property for, uh, for 10 centuries. And they, they also respected uh, free trade, which goes together with uh, private property because yeah. it, does, it doesn't make sense to have private property, then you cannot really spend the money. Mm-hmm. So they, they apply these simple uh, rules and they became extremely prosperous. And, and what is really uh, amazing when you look at things in Greece is that they were surrounded by other cultures, much more um, uh, powerful, very aggressive sometimes, very stubborn, very much um, uh, tyrannical like uh, Egypt. 
all like right. uh, the Persians and the Greeks, they survived them all. Uh, they all collapsed. The, the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, the Persians, they all collapsed and the Greeks continue to thrive because they have this commercial mentality, this very much um, uh, individualistic approach that uh, they allow them to, to be extremely resilient, extremely self-reliant. So they, they were always uh, willing to trade with everybody in the, irrespective of the language, irrespective of the religion, irrespective of the, of the location. They would just go and sail and find people to sell their, their uh, wares. Mm -hmm. They actually sold uh, many products. And they would sell um, uh, silver to the Egyptians and they would buy uh, paper, they would buy papyrus in uh, Egypt and take it to, uh, to Italy. I mean, they would do all kinds of trades. And they became very successful because... It was a culture that was uh, very much based on trade, not on aggression. They, they, mm -hmm. It was very exceptional for uh, ancient Greek culture that they tried to conquer other people. I think it was, except uh, Alexander the Great, who was actually not from Athens, he was from Macedonia, he was from the north. Except for Alexander the Great, all the other uh, Greek um, wars, they're basically defensive. I mean, if they got attacked, they, of course, they defended themselves as, right. as well as they could. But basically, they always preferred to establish trade relationships to make money, to live a nice life, to develop friendships and, um, mm -hmm. and businesses uh, much better than, than doing war. Because uh, right. the few wars they did in their history, they ended up uh, very badly, even if they won. Right. Uh, they, oh, in the yeah. end, um, it was a disaster. So if I heard you correctly, this most important lesson is cooperation. Yes? Uh, well, cooperation, I, I would just say uh, trade. Because cooperation can be, um, I would say, uh, um, in a sense that uh, you just give something for nothing because uh, you want to feel good. And this is perfectly, perfectly fair. I mean, the Greeks yeah. also have their charities. But basically, trade was uh, what creates friendships. And when people have, uh, like in ancient Greeks, because you have to realize that this is fascinating when you look at it. But in ancient Greek um, culture, the cities were very small. I mean, Athens um, never got bigger than 300,000 people. Right. Even right. In, the, in, the, in the greatest um, uh, splendor with uh, Aristotle, uh, Pericles, Plato, I mean, all these uh, great names, the city was still very small. It was 300,000 people. Uh -huh. And they managed to build uh, this huge uh, civilization with the small cities that uh, traded with each other and they helped each other when there was a problem. But basically, people were very independent. And if they didn't yeah. like in one city, because they got some problems, as it happened uh, to Socrates, to Plato, to Aristotle, to almost everybody. Periodically, they would get some problems, and then they would just move. And Aristotle moved to Macedonia, mm -hmm. and Plato moved to Syracuse. And they moved every few years, uh, because the conditions got worse, so they just moved to another settlement, and it wasn't such a big deal. And uh, this is a lesson to learn that uh, a culture which is resilient uh, is very much business-oriented. Yeah, got it. And so you, you've used two words in the past three or four minutes. One was self-reliant and one was resilient. Do they go together? Uh, yes, they do. And um, in my other books, the books about uh, rational living and, uh, and uh, stress, I mean, all the books I've written, I analyze uh, many different biographies in different centuries. Mm -hmm. And you can see that uh, there is a pattern in people who are uh, successful and who are self-reliant, who are happy. And uh, this pattern shows you that uh, the, the common trait uh, that you see in all these people is that uh, they develop some kind of skill, uh, whether it's an artistic skill or uh -huh. a business skill or a manufacturing skill. They develop some kind of skill 
that uh, makes them uh, very self-reliant. And uh, this allows them to move to different cities, uh, to start different businesses, uh, to cope uh, sometimes with um, uh, huge mistakes they make. And then, of course, since, since the, the mistakes can, re, can destroy the assets and can destroy the savings, but they cannot destroy the skill. Mm -hmm. So if you have the skill, right. uh, you can always uh, start over in a different uh, place. And let me yeah. just give you an example. One of the examples I present in the book. I use the, the, um, the story um, of a guy who was, wasn't a Hungarian guy. Uh, his name was Bela Lugosi. And uh, he, he went uh, to the U.S., um, I think it was in the 1930s, 1940s, uh -huh. because he was, uh, he was very famous in Hungary because he used to play Shakespeare, was a, a great uh, theatrical actor in, in Hungary. And uh, when, during the Second World War, uh, he got immediate problems with, the, with censorship, and then he tried to go to Germany to get uh, a job in the movies. And of course, um, he couldn't speak German, so he didn't go. He didn't go very far. And in the end, he went to the U.S. And when he went to the U.S., uh, this guy who had the skill—I mean, he was a good actor, but he was a theatrical actor. And he went to the to the U.S. Uh, he tried to get uh, roles in the theater, but of course, he could only speak Hungarian, so it was a big problem. Right. And he got uh, at the beginning. He survived uh, doing uh, theater in the Hungarian community around New York. But of course, he didn't make any money. So in the end, uh, he tried to get um, uh, roles in different. Uh, he went to auditions to try to get some roles, and uh, he was completely barren. I mean, the guy could not uh, actually pay the bills. Uh, he tried to learn English, but he never actually spoke uh, very fluent uh, English, very fluent American English. He always spoke with a huge uh, Hungarian accent, which is a bit of a joke. Right. But in the end, uh, by sheer persistence, uh, he landed a, jo a role in the Dracula yep. uh, theatrical play in New York, because they were looking someone to play Dracula. And uh, they saw this guy who uh, was too tall, uh, who was quite uh, mysterious, and he could speak, uh, he only spoke English with a huge accent, right. very, very heavy accent, Hungarian accent. So he said, oh, this is the perfect guy to play Dracula. <laughs> so course. he played uh, Dracula in the, on the theater uh, for a couple of seasons, with, uh, and then he went on tour. Uh, to Los Angeles, he went to Chicago, he went to Detroit, and uh, he was very successful. And in the end, the producers from Hollywood said, oh, maybe we can make a movie. So they, they hired the guy to, to be on a movie, and that was the beginning of a huge success. The, the skills, uh, the theatrics or the acting skills, uh, Lugosi had the, the skills. I mean, he didn't like to play Dracula. I mean, this I have to say, because I actually read um, uh, extensively on, on Lugosi, uh -huh. because I found this story fascinating. And the guy hated actually the role. I mean, he wanted to play Shakespeare. And he was uh, quite pissed off that he never really got Americans to appreciate uh, classical theater because mm. he wanted to play uh, ancient Greek theater. He wanted to play Shakespeare. He did a few times, uh, basically to empty theaters. And in the end, uh, okay, he said, okay, then I have to play Dracula. But he really tried every possible um, uh, way to get out of the role, but he never managed because he was so successful. Yeah. People always saw um, uh, Lugosi as Dracula. And the guy was really, really angry that uh, he never really was appreciated as an actor, I mean, as he wanted to be. And in the end, when he died, I mean, it went as far that when he died, uh, he was really trying to get a role in a real story. And then when he died, he was buried in the Dracula costume. Oh and my this gosh! Is really, this is really the the worst uh, he could imagine because he really hated uh, to play mm. Dracula. But uh, the story is that in the end he had the skills. Yes. I mean, he didn't uh, speak English uh, perfectly, but he had the skills, the acting skills, and he found uh, a niche 
in the market. And this is how most people become successful. If you become uh, um, self-reliant because you know you know to do something, you have some skills, you will eventually find a way to exploit them commercially. It is just that yes. uh, it might not be it might not be what you have in mind uh, at the beginning, but uh, you can find the, you can find a way. And this. I mean, I show in my books uh, many examples similar to uh, Lugosi, mm -hmm. because this is the way where actually uh, you can see how people become successful. Uh, what you read in, uh, in personal development books, I mean, this idea that you must have a goal and you need to have a plan and you have to, to follow the plan. I mean, this is real nonsense, because uh, when you look at real biographies, you see that 99% of the people who become successful, they don't have really, they don't have really a goal. They have a sense of direction. Yeah. And this is something that I really want to stress because uh, you, you, we have to forget about this uh, nonsense about the goal and everything because um, it doesn't work like this. I mean, the, when you look at real life or real uh, stories, you see that uh, people who have a sense of direction, who, have, who are curious, who have a, a deep interest in some area, yes. they develop uh, very well because they find opportunities, they find uh, mm -hmm. ways to use their talent. Yeah. But uh, the goal, no, there is no goal. This Lugosi just wanted to get ahead. Right. Uh, he uh, stumbled uh, upon the Dracula story by chance. I mean, he could have done something else, but uh, it was the right opportunity and he just got it. But he had the skills already and he had a keen uh, interest in the theater. Nice. In your research, you found the untold reason behind high stress. What is it? I spent a year uh, researching this book uh, about stress, uh, which I call Consistency, the Key to uh, uh, Long-Term Stress Relief. And I have to tell you, the the problem why we can become so stressed is because we try to chase uh, rabbits uh, in different directions. Uh, we try to do too many things. We try to, to do uh, too many things that are contradictory, yeah. uh, that do not fit together. And uh, we spend our time uh, trying to put together schedules that are impossible. Yeah. And this is something that, uh, like every animal, we try to chase uh, shiny objects. Yeah. But um, human, in human beings, this is really an epidemic. And uh, this is the, the only way to reduce stress is really to get focused and to become consistent. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that uh, meditation, for instance, uh, will not help much because it will not solve uh, the underlying problem. Beautiful. And what is your antidote against excessive worry? Well, because um, it kind of it kind of ties into the high stress, because when we're high stressed, we're worrying. Yes, but it's uh, it's a very uh, abstract answer. I will have to give you dozens of examples to show, but I just want to give you the short answer. The only way where I have seen in, in history people reducing their worry, uh -huh. even in times of war, because I've studied a lot of uh, cases also in military history, right. is when they actually are able to, um, to, uh, to assess the situation and to actually put it in, in context. And this is a very uh, complex intellectual process because when you have, uh, when you're facing a, a problem like, I don't know, you get fired from a job or you are divorcing mm -hmm. or you are uh, severely sick, it's very difficult to, relate, to, to, um, to have a relative uh, approach and to say, look, look at the big picture because we, we go into panic mode and then everything looks uh, dark. Right. But uh, the only way to eliminate worry is to look at the, at the, at the big picture to see um, the problems in context and to realize that uh, if you lose your job, I mean, there are other jobs. It might take you some time to get another job. It might require some uh, training, might require moving to another mm -hmm. city, but you will eventually make it. And uh, most people who get uh, severely sick, most of them recover if they change their lifestyle. It might take a while, but uh, unless you are really terminally sick, and this yeah. is a rare case, you can recover. It's just annoying. 
And uh, to go from uh, a polling to annoying, uh, it takes a lot of uh, intellectual work. And right. um, I, um, I present many examples in my books uh, how to do it. Yeah. And so th this is really the basis for be why to become self-reliant, because when we are self-reliant, when we're, you know, self-aware, then worry and high stress, it becomes less, does it not? Well, uh, yes, but um, to be self-reliant requires, uh, requires uh, emotional balance, requires yeah. uh, skills, requires sometimes some savings, and it's difficult to get there, especially when you're starting in life and um, uh, you don't have many good opportunities for jobs, or sometimes you have to move to another city and you don't know anybody. Mm -hmm. It looks quite a uh, challenging um, enterprise. But uh, it's only with time, uh, and uh, one of the big um, ideas in my books is that you have to look at your career in the long term, then you realize that you, you took the right steps, uh, you made the right decisions, and you become self-reliant as you accumulate uh, small successes. Yeah. Beautiful. So what one great habit should you pick up today? Well, uh, this I pick up uh, during uh, my writing of the book on ancient Greece, uh -huh. because um, um, a great part of the book, uh, I mean, I deals with philosophy and history, but also with uh, medicine, because I, I did a lot of research about Hippocrates, who was um, yep. uh, a great Greek physician. He wrote uh, actually huge amount of uh, books. Um, and uh, one of the habits I pick on Hippocrates uh, is the, um, the consumption, the daily consumption of uh, vegetable soup. And this is something that uh, Hippocrates, uh, we're talking 25 centuries ago, mm -hmm. he used to prescribe uh, vegetable soup uh, for all kind of sickness. I mean, when everybody came, when anybody came to him and said, well, I promise uh -huh. with uh, my throat or the lungs or the liver, he would always, the first thing he did, you have to take vegetable soup every day. He, soup. he wrote yeah. a very detailed uh, recipe um, using potatoes, uh, garlic, uh, onions, uh, lake. I mean, he put all the all the ingredients, and I, I put this also in the, on the book. And I thought it was a great idea. Uh, it's not difficult to prepare. It takes uh, half an hour. Mm -hmm. But uh, since I, I read it uh, and I researched that, I said, oh, I think this is great. So while I was writing the book, I picked up the habit and I, I recommend it to everybody because uh, I think it has a very positive um, uh, yeah. impact on your immune system and your overall health. Yeah. We uh, actually consume here at the Urban Farm uh, mineral broth quite often, which is basically boiled down you know, vegetables, the vegetable, you know, the minerals out of vegetables. So mm -hmm. I hear you. I hear you. How does rational living work in a modern world? Well, it works um, if you keep a cool head because mm. we are surrounded by uh, massively rational uh, people and circumstances all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, unless you take a step back and you try to become a bit sometimes solitary and to try to think uh, things um, calmly, you run the risk of uh, being uh, pushed ahead in the wrong direction. Yeah. And um, uh, it's very difficult uh, nowadays um, to find the time to reflect a little bit, uh, to take the right decisions, but uh, there is no option. I mean, um, unless you take, you make an effort to become a bit more rational and to think things mm -hmm. through, eventually you will regret it because uh, you will find yourself in the wrong situation, you will find yourself in the wrong career, you will find yourself in a marriage that you don't uh, enjoy. Mm -hmm. And uh, these, these big mistakes are very, very difficult to correct because it can take yeah. uh, years uh, to undo the damage. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that goes back to 
learning how to become self-reliant. I love how this is all circling around that concept of resilience and self-reliance. This last question you sent over to me, it's, uh, it's quite a curious one, especially with the very interesting times that we are living in these days. And that is three solid reasons to be optimistic about our future. Yes, um, and this is something that um, uh, I think we should remind ourselves every day because, I mean, I got, I mean, I was doing yesterday a, a show and uh, the guy said, oh, look, now everybody's depressed because of this and this. And he was telling me all the stories in the newspapers. I said, look, you have to look at the big picture, the bigger picture, uh-huh. I would say. And uh, we have uh, nowadays in the 20th century, we have several trends, uh, historical trends that are very positive. They are invisible to a certain extent because we are in the water and we cannot see the water, but the water is all around. And um, I want just to mention these three trends uh, briefly because they are here. They are not going to disappear in the next decades and they are very positive. So the first one is technology, of course. And uh, people are sometimes scared of technology because ah, it's going to be used mm-hmm. uh, to destroy our lives and they become very much paranoid. But uh, yeah, okay, you can misuse technology, but uh, it has such an obvious um, impact on uh, productivity or making our yeah. lives easier. And this is, not going to, uh, this is not going to disappear. And we're not talking only technology in the, in the industrialized countries in the US or Europe or Australia. We are talking technology in Africa or in India, uh, where people have uh, smartphones uh, all around the place. And this has a huge uh, liberating impact. Mm. It has a huge um, um, uh, opening for uh, businesses and for productivity. And this is something that's not going to change. So yes, we have a lot of problems in the world, but technology is a big help and it's going to be improving uh, day after day. And this yeah. is going to generate uh, lots of opportunities. So it's a, a first factor to be optimistic. Second, number two, is the, the mentality of uh, entrepreneurship, which many mm. people take for granted. Yes. But uh, this is something relatively new in history that you see millions of people in different uh, continents, different uh, professional areas, uh, different, different circumstances, uh, starting companies and trying yeah. to, uh, to, to uh, create uh, value, to create uh, wealth, uh, to create um, uh, a better life for themselves and for their customers. And this is something that uh, is sweeping the world it's not going to change because it's a change of mentality, it's a historical shift that uh, has taken, uh, I would say, centuries uh, to develop. Right. And now it's, it's just uh, starting uh, to, uh, to become a, a wave. This is not going to change. And this is uh, tremendously positive. And uh, this is going to prevent uh, a lot of problems in the future because when people are doing business with each other, mm-hmm. uh, they don't uh, aggress against each other. Yeah. And this is, uh, uh, and when people invest money in different countries, uh, they care about the world. They care much more than uh, if they stay home and then just watch TV because they, their money is at stake yeah. uh, when right. they invest uh, abroad. Right. So this kind of entrepreneurship, is entrepreneurial spirit that we have in the 21st century is going to be, I think, um, in, increasing in the next decades. It's really a very positive driver of history and it is highly underappreciated by the media. Right. And the number three I want to mention is the the competition between uh, countries mm-hmm. that is this is also something which is underappreciated but you have to realize that um, uh, nowadays uh, many countries compete against each other to offer uh, good uh, conditions for entrepreneurs uh, for tourists uh, for people who are on pension i mean they try to offer a good package of taxes i mean relatively affordable taxes or low taxes legal security a peaceful environment and they try to compete to offer good things. And this is fantastic trend in history. 
that is not going to disappear because uh, there is an increasing competition to attract entrepreneurs, to attract um, uh, creative people, mm -hmm. uh, to attract um, uh, skilled professionals. And this is very good for everybody because uh, it increases uh, across the board uh, all the positive factors in society. And this is a trend which is fantastic. It's going to continue in the next decades. And it makes me very optimistic about the future. Nice. Yeah, we need a lot of that these days. That is for sure. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to briefly talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Well, my, my biggest failures in the end became my biggest uh, successes. Love because that. One, one, one thing, um, uh, because I'm quite a persistent, uh, I would say a stubborn or kind of person, and when I really want to do something, I, I try to find a way. Uh -huh. But um, for instance, one thing I really enjoy a lot is learning languages. I have to tell you that uh, it's quite frustrating when you try to learn a new language and you just don't get it. Mm. It takes forever to learn the, the... And in the end, I remember when I, when I started to learn the German uh, many years ago, that I found it so frustrating because it's quite a complex language oh, yeah. you have to memorize still. And it's quite difficult to actually to, uh, to speak German. And it took me... Um, I mean, I was actually on the verge of uh, giving up several times. I said, no, no, come on, this has to be possible. And there are so many people who <laughs> right? speak German. And eventually I managed, uh, it took me a lot of work. Uh, I'm very proud I managed to do it, but um, you have to realize that uh, you need certain uh, level of stubbornness and determination when you really want to do something. Mm. Because uh, for me it was uh, something I found it fascinating. I put a lot of work into it. And in the end, um, I mean, it has proven very good also for my books because now I can do interviews uh, in uh, German right. podcasts and radio oh, stations. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's quite an asset. But uh, I tell you, um, I came to it out of a stubbornness and pure determination because yeah. um, it's, uh, it's something that uh, requires a lot of work, requires uh, a lot of patience uh, when you learn the language because you make a lot of mistakes. But eventually when you manage to do it, I say, wow, this is really great. Um, I now can see part of the world that was hidden huh? because every language right. uh, opens you new perspectives. Uh, you meet new people. You see many things that uh, your brain was blocking because as soon as you see something written in a language you don't understand, your brain mm -hmm. will just block it out and pretend that doesn't exist. So this is something that uh, I'm very proud of, but I have to tell you, is the result of a massive, massive failure yeah. uh, for, a long, for a long time. Yeah. Good for you because I know languages, they're hard to wrap around, especially when we're adults. What do you consider your biggest success? Well, my biggest success uh, is that I managed to, uh, to find the time to write books, mm. um, despite uh, having other activities. And uh, this is something that uh, requires um, a huge amount of organization because in the end you have to fix, uh, you have to allocate the time, you have to find the time to do the yep. research, to, to edit. And I have to tell you, most people who, who dream of uh, writing books, uh, they don't realize that writing is the least problem. The problem is the <laughs> exactly. And uh, I mean, I remember when I wrote the first book, it took me like four weeks to write the, the, the book, but then seven months to edit because it was such a mess. Right. And um, this requires uh, a lot of uh, uh, trial and error and getting better uh, with every book. I uh, become a bit more efficient. I become a bit faster. Mm -hmm. I'm able to write, I think, a bit better. But uh, to go from a draft until you have a, a book which can be read uh, easily, at this, uh, it flows because the language is clear, because it's well written, mm -hmm. it takes a lot of effort, it requires a lot of determination. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm doing my best. I, I guess there are geniuses who are able to, uh, to write a uh, first draft uh, perfectly, 
It is not my case. It takes me a lot of effort to get uh, <laughs> right. to a finished product. Yeah. But uh, it's a learning curve. And I think possibly in a few years from now, I will become much better and much more efficient. Good on you, man. That writing books is, is definitely a skill to have. So what drives you? Well, it drives me at the, uh, what drives me is for on, the, on the one side, the desire to spread the message of rationality, of uh, business uh, openness, of um, a peaceful and prosperous society. Mm. I think this is uh, uh, a mission. Yeah. And um, also the passion uh, for writing. I find it uh, intellectually fascinating when you have a concept and you want to develop the concept into a full book and you have to put all the pieces together and then you have to polish uh, the whole thing over and over again until it becomes uh, something that resembles a book. It's uh, intellectually, it's a very complex process. I find mm. it um, uh, very interesting. It's every time you start to write a new book, it's a challenge because it seems like impossible to do the whole process uh, relatively quickly. But it's a game that uh, I started to play uh, now in 2008, and I played with passion, and I hope to be playing it for the next decades uh, with uh, increasing success, I hope. Well, beautiful. Beautiful. And talking about books, I'm all about education. I have to know, is there one book that has been influential for you in this process in your life? Yes. Uh, well, I, I mean, I have many favorite books, but yeah. I just want to mention one, which is called The, the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Oh, yes. And uh, this, is a, this is a book. It was a book from the um, 18th century. Mm-hmm. It was written by a guy. His name was uh, Gibbon, Edward Gibbon, uh, a, a British uh, author. Mm-hmm. And the way he wrote it, uh, I mean, just to tell you the story in a few, in half a minute, is fascinating because this is a guy who was um, uh, was relatively poor because he, he went into the army because he didn't have a, a big inheritance. His father wanted him to uh, to actually to get into the army and then he eventually he he became a catholic he went out of uh, britain he went to uh, switzerland and then he his father made such a pressure on him that he had to convert again to to become a protestant so it was mm. quite, a, quite a heavy problem so in the end the guy was completely um, uh, without uh, any purpose in life he was a bit depressed he went to rome uh, in uh, was in 19 sorry 1870 right uh, he walked around and then he looked at the ruins of the of the coliseum the ruins of the of the forum and he started to wonder oh how is it possible that uh, such a great civilization has fallen so low that everything has been destroyed that there are only mm-hmm. ruins and uh, he was uh, so intrigued by the question that uh, it became a passion for him and for the rest of his life basically for the next uh, 15 years he devoted all his time to doing research on the on Roman um, ancient sources because he learned uh, Latin and, and Greek uh, very well. He was the only one in the 18th century who actually spent all the time reading all the ancient books. And he produced this fantastic series of books uh, called The Decline and, and Fall of the Roman Empire, yeah. which is a delight to read. The language is beautiful. I think it's one, one of the best books uh, ever written in English. And I always find a delight uh, to read it because it is so influential in our culture. And uh, you can see the present world in the 21st century. When uh, you read uh, Gibbon, you see that all the parameters of our world, they were already present in the, in the yeah. Asian world. Wow. So what one final piece of advice you have for our listeners? Well, if you pick up only one uh, idea from my books, uh, I wanted to be this one is that to uh, make your decisions and your planning and your I said you have to plan your happiness mm. uh, with the perspective of a lifetime, not too long and not too short. I mean, you are not going to live. Uh, I, I, most of uh, people, I think they will not live uh, more than 100 years, but you're going to live at least 
80, 90, perhaps 100 years. And you have to think in this perspective. I mean, you cannot take uh, decisions that are so short-sighted, uh, just trying to solve the problem of the day, and then you are going to uh, to actually uh, damage your future. Right. Uh, you should not also adopt uh, a completely crazy idea that you're going to be immortal, because eventually you will die. So eventually um, you will have to, uh, to, to, to take this into consideration. But if you think in terms of a lifetime, most of the problems that uh, we face today, uh, they become completely unimportant because they will not have any impact right. uh, five years or 10 years. So yep. thinking in terms of a lifetime is completely counterintuitive, but I think it's one of the keys uh, to being self-reliant, uh, to being successful and happy. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, John. It's been a treat getting to chat with you. Many thanks, uh, Greg. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. So your books, you've got nine of them. How do people find them? How do we find you? Uh, it's very easy. Uh, most people who ever hear from me from the first time, they, I think they might want to have uh, access to the, they have a free newsletter. So I would start for that. But uh, it's very easy to find uh, the whole thing. If you just type my name, uh, John Vespasian on Google, you will find the free newsletter, you will find the blog, you will find the books, Perfect. you will find uh, dozens of interviews on uh, different uh, podcasts and radio stations. So it's very easy to find. Just type uh, John Vespasian on Google or on any search engine and you will find uh, the, my staff uh, very, very quickly. Perfect. Perfect. John Vespasian is spelled J-O-H-N-V-E-S-P-A-S-I-A-N. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash rational living. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Did you know the best seeds for your garden don't come from the nursery? In fact, the seeds that will create the most robust and delicious fruits and vegetables come directly from your garden. This is because they are uniquely adapted to your growing conditions, better than anything you can buy from a fancy catalog or website. Through the magic of seed saving, it is quite possible to have the garden of your dreams. The best part is, Saving your own seeds is surprisingly easy and fun. With a bit of instruction, anyone can become a seed-saving superstar. Let us teach you how in our free seed-saving webinar. Just text SEEDS to 33444 to sign up or visit SeedSavingHacked.org for more information. That's SEEDS to 33444 or visit seedsavinghacked.org. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, 
Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.